Welcome to Food Friends. I'm Carrie. And I'm Sonia. We met in Los Angeles over 15 years ago as private chefs and haven't stopped talking about food since. We created Food Friends to share our stories and recipes with each other and you. We're so glad you're here. Hi, it's Sonia. When it comes to the end of the year, what meals stick out in your mind? Were they memorable because they tasted good or because of where you ate them or who you were with or where you were traveling to? Or was it a combination of all of those factors? Well, that's what me and Carrie discovered this week. We're wrapping up the year talking about the best things we ate. And it turns out so many of those are related more to the atmosphere or the person who cooked the food or the context than even the dish itself. But there's also a lot of dishes that we ate out in the world that inspired us in our home kitchens. And so we'll be exploring those too. We also want to let you know we're taking a little bit of a break for the holidays and for the beginning of the year to ramp back up. We can't wait to release more episodes in 2024. And in the meantime, we wish all of you a wonderful new year, a happy holiday season. Thank you so much for listening, for being part of this community. We're so grateful. And stay tuned for more. Hi, Sonia. Hi, Carrie. Sonia, I feel like we're starting a new tradition. I know. This is our second year in a row of reflecting. I really enjoyed this conversation last year. And in looking back at this past year, it was really fun to kind of recount all the great meals I had. And it also made me feel really grateful. There was so much good food. But with that good food comes friendship, which is what we are always talking about is food and friendship. But sitting down to a meal, connecting with people, catching up with people, making memories with friends, that was kind of the overarching thought that I walked away from this exercise with. So much of what makes something the quote-unquote best dish of a year has so much to do with the context of who you're eating it with, who made it, the experiences you're having. It's not just about the food itself because it's really hard to quantify a best when we are overwhelmingly so lucky to have so much good food in our life. Speaking of which, before we get into our best dishes, I just want to shout out something. I went to the farmer's market this weekend, speaking of overwhelmingly good food in our life. (laughs) Yes. And I was strolling around and a young person stopped me and said, hey, I recognize you from Food Friends. My best friend and I, we listen every week. They, we live in two different states and we have to talk about it on the oh phone every single week. And this was a young personal chef named Sammy. And I just want to say thank you for coming up and sharing that with me so I can share it with you, Carrie. And we love hearing from our listeners. It yes. is so, so meaningful. It's really so meaningful. And what I was also going to say about in the choosing of favorite dishes is that we don't ever experience food in a vacuum, right? Right. Like you're not just sitting in a room with white walls and eating food and judging it. And so it is meaningful to like have these experiences with our friends and, you know, even just what you're expressing with this young chef that came up to you. It's like when you don't live near your closest friends, having this conversation that you and I have and so lovely that they're having the same kind of conversation where you're sharing, what am I cooking? And what are you cooking? And how are we connecting over that? And it's kind of 
everything, isn't it? Yeah. So anyway, I'm excited to dive right in. I want to hear what your number one or first, we don't have to rank them, your first memorable dish of 2023 is. I just want to add one last caveat, which is that you and I talked about how we weren't going to talk about what we've eaten together necessarily because we've talked about that in previous episodes, right? Like you came to visit me and I came to visit you. I just wanted to sort of mention that before we get started. And then just personally, I have to think about things chronologically. So mine, they start at the beginning of the year and they move, you know, they move forward. I love that. But I think that's really important that we did set a sort of ground rule. So my first dish, memorable dish of 2023 is an omelet. Completely surprised. Total curveball. I'm almost laughing that that's like one of my most memorable dishes. But again, it's all about the context of where I had this omelet in addition to the fact that it was an incredibly delicious plate of food. So in February, James and Mac and I went to visit some friends in Louisiana. And we went during Mardi Gras. And we totally skipped over New Orleans. And we went to their town, which is called Lafayette. And we were there for a few days, definitely celebrating Mardi Gras with them. But they are really incredible food friends of mine. I've mentioned them on this podcast before. And they took us Cajun dancing. It's called Zydeco dancing. So we went to this place in a small town and it was for brunch. And we like lined up at 7.45 in the morning and we got in and we sat down at our table and the meal started with freshly fried beignets, which Mm. are, you know, a sweet fritter, basically like a donut. And then we all ordered breakfast and I ordered, it was an omelet with a biscuit but the omelet was just so well executed and it had grilled onions and mushrooms and bell peppers and tomatoes. But it's like they had made all those things ahead of time and then put them in a mix so that they could make the food quickly. In addition to all the vegetables that were like perfectly sauteed, very flavorful, there was also bacon and cheddar cheese. And What an extravagant omelet. It was an extravagant omelet. There's a lot going on and what you're describing. There was so much flavor. It was just like a really flavorful omelet. And when I when I go back and visit them again someday, I would actually order it without bacon because the vegetables were so good. And obviously cheese and eggs are, are fantastic. But to serve it with the side of a biscuit, I mean, what more do I want in life than an omelet, a biscuit, and a spicy Bloody Mary? I think there's something about the combination of tomato, onion, cheese, and egg. Like yes, peppers with- and Peppers. The peppers are so flavorful, but there's something about a tomato that I yes. think is like, especially if it's cooked, not a raw tomato. Yes. Like, and it has that umami that cooked tomato has. Mm-hmm. It just makes an omelet feel really well balanced because the egg yolks are kind of rich. I have to say, I don't order that many omelets out in oh, the world. I mean, I do. I love an omelet for you sure. Do. Yeah. But what made it so fun was that we were getting up and down from the table and dancing and being with these friends and being in this space. And what brings people to this tiny town and to this brunch is the dancing. And they could totally mail in the food, I think, and people would still go, but they didn't. What is the name of the place, Do you? The name of the place is called Buck and Johnny's. Great name. And I know, fantastic name. And it's in this tiny town, smaller than my hometown, called Bro Bridge. And it's near Lafayette. And it's, it's known as the crawfish capital of the world, which is also kind of amazing. It's, it was such a joyful, fun way to 
brunch with friends. It was a fantastic memory. Yeah. That's a a really good example of the place and the context matter as much as the food. So I have one that's kind of similar in terms of it's not just about the food. It was about the whole experience. Yeah. So there's a chef in Portland named Josephine LaCosta, Mm -hmm. who's an incredible chef. She has a business called Elbows Catering. And she and I have, we've talked, we've collaborated, we're also friends. And one of the things we both talked about a lot is how the best restaurants are really in people's home kitchens, meaning like the best meals that we've ever had in our life are typically in someone's house. And that a restaurant can never be a house, right? Except for could it? So this past fall, Josephine was like trying to test that theory. And so she's like, okay, I'm going to do a couple pop-ups in my house. She set it up completely as a restaurant, little tables, two tops, four tops, inside, outside. Wait, can I stop you? How many, how many tables? It could fit 15 to 20 people, not a lot of people, but like different tables inside and outside. And there was a menu where you could order a la carte, not a prefix. So just like a restaurant, you could order what you wanted, but a very small menu, very focused. And you could make a reservation in advance all through Instagram. So I immediately, when I saw that she posted this, knowing how much we both love to have the experience of eating in a home. And also because I've actually had the experience of her feeding me in her kitchen just as friends. I was like, I have to get in on this, made a reservation. And one of the dishes I really feel like is truly one of the best things I ate this year. And so she made beans from my friend's farm, La Miranda Farm. Yes, yes. (laughs) Uh, But I think they were barlotto beans, like an Italian pinkish bean, very creamy, very rich, very flavorful. And she cooked these beans so perfectly, like each one was completely intact. Each one was like buttery and velvety. And she served them on this kind of chestnut puree with all these um, layers of flavors. I can't even remember every spice. And then she she charred a wedge of purple cabbage, like in a cast iron or something, you know, similar. And so then served this like sweet caramelized charred cabbage on these buttery velvety beans on top of this incredibly rich slightly sweet nutty puree. That sounds life-changing. It was life-changing. And I still, I don't know where I would have ever thought to combine a nutty pureed element with a bean. That's not where my mind goes to with the bean. Agreed. Agreed. And then to char cabbage. I mean, listen, we're the two of us like love cabbage so much. Like yeah. such a underappreciated vegetable. And to char it and make it sweet like that, but also leave it with some texture is I mean, what a great combination. So since then, at least three times I've made beans and charred cabbage. I mean, as like a combined meal. Not that yeah. and I've made that combination before in my life, but the way that she put it together, I found really inspiring. And it's because there's an inherent sweetness and an inherent earthiness in both cabbage and beans. And then like you combine them and then the texture, because if you're charring a cabbage, you're not wilting it till it's soft, kind of it still has crunch to it. Yeah. With a very soft bean, it's such a lovely combo. So yeah, that really stands out. And also the setting, like it was so fun to see my friends cooking a meal. Like my bean farmer friend, Katie, was making the desserts and to see Josephine in her kitchen, but all like a restaurant, it really transformed with little like candlelight and and it was just very romantic and sweet. What a delightful experience. Truly. Well, so my second dish is unsurprisingly pizza. Um, (laughs) 
But the context, again, all of my dishes were kind of based on travel and visiting friends. Over spring break, Mac and I went to Texas to visit our friends. And they have two little girls. And so we were going to spend time with them. And they live on a property where they have a house on on one part of the property and their parents have a house on the other part of the property. So we're almost like staying on this campus together. And I love to cook for them. And we all love to cook together. So Kenji Lopez Alt, who is a very famous, well-known food writer, released an a recipe for tavern style pizza, which is like a very thin Chicago style pizza. So I decided I was going to make that while I was there. How fun. Because that's like a throwback from my childhood is like these really thin crust pizzas. And it was such an interesting recipe because one of the things that you do is you make the dough and then you roll it out and then you leave it out for like a day. So it becomes like crackery thin and then you cook it. Oh, wow. Yeah. It was such a new method of making pizza, but I definitely recognized that texture from my childhood. It's it's a lot like this pizza that I grew up eating. The pizza chain was called Monocles and it was this like round pizza and they would cut it into squares, but it was so thin and crispy. So it's not like a Neapolitan thin because it has like a crispiness to it. It's something apparently very Midwestern. It's very Midwestern. It's very regional. It's worth seeking out his research. He goes to all these different small places. You know, Chicago is known for deep dish, thick crust. It is important to note that a Chicago deep dish pizza, it is a crispy crust. It's not a soft doughy crust. It's not a soft doughy crust either. And so, but this is just like a very different experience. And what was their verdict about the pizza, did they like it? Because it sounds different than traditional. I mean, what's not to like about any pizza? Yeah, but- they they loved it. We I made a couple of different versions. The one that Kenji published is a sausage pizza that also has like a jardinere element to it. So there's like a spiciness to it. So I made a couple of versions, certainly for Mac and their little girls. I just had a few cheese pizzas, which we all loved too. But then I made like a couple of spicier versions, which was also really fun. And- jardinere too is just so it's a or in case someone doesn't know it's that hot pepper pickly mixture that's so common in Chicago and so delicious and tangy usually it's on like a beef sandwich right Right. like almost like a french dip or like a Chicago style beef sandwich or like a sausage sandwich because it's it's a really nice counterpoint to all that rich meat but the thing to sort of note about making this pizza was that we almost didn't sit down while we were because every time one of the pizzas would come out of the oven and I would cut it into little squares so you could just take a little square and just kind of like pop it in your mouth. And we were just kind of walking around the kitchen just eating pizza, which is really against most of my rules at no, home. but I think a homemade <laughs> pizza party dictates that you eat the pizzas as they come out of the oven, which means like you sometimes have just little bits of pizzas and you're standing around and moving around because they can only really yeah. cook one or two at a time most. And if you have a big crew, that's just what happens. You're just standing around. Yeah. I also like this idea of a pickly hot pepper because it reminded me too of this place near a house, a pizza spot near a house where they put this pepper called Mama Lil's, which is a really popular pickled hot pepper, marinated pepper here in Portland. And it's so good on a pizza. Something spicy and marinated and pickly and peppery. Yeah, tangy. It's like yeah, tangy. that tanginess. Yeah. It's so yummy on a pizza. With Even if it's a vegetarian, it doesn't even need sausage. Yeah, that sounds so delicious. And I think the, the last thing that I would add about this experience too was that once I got there, we kind of needed to go to the grocery store, which was also really fun. So we picked up a pack of flour tortillas. We also made actually your, I always call it your chicken tinga because that's 
Pets. You're the person who taught me how to make chicken tinga, but I made them chicken tinga tacos with these flour tortillas. The point that I wanted to make is that, you know, we had to plan ahead in order to have this because you you let this dough sit out for a couple of days. But that's what also is kind of great about it because making homemade pizza pizzas in the oven, to your point, you can only make like one or two at a time. But like you can plan all of that ahead. You can make the sauce ahead. You can get the sausage ahead. You can get all the jardinier, the cheese. You can assemble everything ahead of time. And then to your point, like have a party where everyone's just kind of, you know, hanging around, eating little bites of pizza. And it was so fun. It's such a great party idea. It's a really great party idea that works any time of year. Yes. Okay. The next one might surprise you. I don't think anyone's ever had this before outside of where I had it. So there, I have to, so one of the best things I ate all year was a borscht taco. And did I tell you about this? No, I don't know anything about this. I'm hearing this cold. I love it. So there's a place in Portland that I, that has only been around for a little over a year that I really discovered this year. And it's called Rusa PDX. And it's run by a woman kind of similar to me. Her parents are immigrants from the former Soviet Union. She actually grew up in Los Angeles. But what's interesting about her family is half of her family moved to Mexico when they immigrated from Russia and half of her family moved to California. She was raised by her two sides of her family who all ended up in California where she was born, but they all frequently had this mixture of things in their home like tamales and borscht. Even though all of her family originally is comes from Russia because they had spent so much time in Mexico, her one side of the family. They had adopted the Mexican traditions and incorporated them into their own cooking styles. How so she, cool. Very cool. She's yeah. an extraordinary chef. So she started out with a food cart and she's combining Russian food and Mexican food, which <laughs> literally I've never seen anywhere else in no. the country. Maybe it exists, but I've never found it. And she's, of course, doing it her own unique way. And if you look at her reviews, like her Yelp reviews and Google reviews, they're five stars. That is unheard of. As a former restaurant owner, that is unheard of. And especially for a food that's kind of challenging, like it's not what you expect. So there's things like she has these plays on stroganoff. She does these chorizo stuffed pierogi. Uh, She does beef stroganoff tamales. The other thing she does that's so cool is every single thing on her menu has a vegan version. So she has a meat version with meat and dairy and then a a version that's all plant-based because she likes to eat plant-based. She's not a vegan, but she likes it. And she was always frustrated that if you go out to restaurants, the vegan options don't mirror the meat options. So you don't get to have the same experience. So she wanted people, however they ate, to have the same experience of her food. So I just think... Everything she's doing is so tremendously exciting and delicious. But her borscht tacos, dude. Wait, I you I you have to describe okay. this. You're describing a soup and a tortilla, and that doesn't. No. I'm, I'm I don't. I'm not following. No. So what she did is she really celebrates the beet, and you know how I feel about beets. <laughs> I know how you feel about beets, and you know how I feel about yeah. beets. So she kind of <laughs> uses the beets in at least three ways, and she has. I'll talk about the meat version first. So a borscht, which is a beet soup. It's very common in Ukraine, Russia, all across the former Soviet Union. It could be made vegetarian or it can be made with meat. And often it's made with beef when it's made with meat. And probably you've never had that because I we always talk about the borscht I make, which is vegetarian. But I've never heard of borscht having it's very meat. common for it to have okay. meat. And okay. so she takes, I don't know if it's brisket or some other part of the beef, but she basically braises the beef with beets, makes like a tender aromatic shredded beef, like a guisado style taco, puts right 
that in a tortilla. She gets her tortillas from an incredible place in town that makes them. And then she adds a beet juice she makes with reduced beets, like a sauce. She adds shredded raw beets that have been marinated. She adds dill. You know how I feel about dill. She adds a crema and and I think onion. And it's like a taco. That's like the meat version. And the vegetarian version, it's a very well seasoned, I think spiced cubed beets and carrots, like the elements of a borscht in roasted form. So it's like the flavors of a borscht in a taco. Wow. That's so interesting. And I can post photos of those so that people can see and I'll link to her food cart so you can read more about her. And also actually had the fortune of writing about her for one of the publications I write for. So I'll link that article too, but she's just a tremendous chef. I'm not like a beet lover as, as I've said before. But I want to taste and experience that just by the way you described it because it just sounds so interesting and different and also so thoughtfully considered. All these different elements, cooked elements, raw elements, creamy, pickly, anything in a tortilla, in a well-made tortilla is like, who doesn't love a taco? And who doesn't love someone who's really sharing their unique food story through their dishes? And I think we just taste that. And also that meal, when when I first really tried her, food. It was with friends who came in from out of town. And to introduce a friend to something they've never experienced before and be like, hey, I found this thing. I don't know if you're... We had a choice that night of going to a very fancy, well-known hyped restaurant or going Mm -hmm. to this little food cart on the edge of town. And my friends were like, let's do the food cart. And I was like, yes. I would say say yes. It's This is what it's all about. Yeah. And it's like the combination of Soviet, Russian, Ukrainian food combined with Mexican food is very unexpected for you and me, but that's her experience, yeah. right? Yeah. That's what I think food is all about is connecting and seeing where we have these commonalities and then where are we different and unique and where can we learn from each other, you know? Exactly. Okay. okay, last one is sort of in the zone that you were just describing, but it's a tamale mm. and it's in a place where you and I both were this year, but not together. Over spring break, we also went to Sedona. Yes. And we went to eat at this little tiny family restaurant called Tamaliza, and they specialize in tamales. What I really loved about this place, it's funny, as you were mentioning her Yelp reviews, these people have like some of the best Yelp reviews I've ever seen too. People love their food and going to this tiny restaurant is like going to someone's house for dinner. It's very small. It's very cozy. The thing that really struck me when I first walked in the door was how calm it it was. And I watched the woman who was kind of like in the kitchen, which is a very open kitchen. The vibe that was happening there, it was so calm and so intentional. And their specialty are these tamales. They serve it with a little bit of black beans kind of over top of it. Mm. And and then they serve it with greens that are tossed in a little bit of vinaigrette and a little bit of pickled red onion. I think in a way, what I really loved about this version version of a tamale was that I feel like if I made tamales and I was making them at my home, I'm always looking for ways to kind of lighten things or like add some greenery or add some, Uh add the pickly element. And they did that. And it just, it wasn't this excessive experience of Mexican food. And the other thing that they served there that was really delicious that we all drank was tapache. 
they Love make tapache. Ha- they make housemade tapache. It was so light and well done. And it was it's like if I had a sister who was like, I was going to her house. This is like kind of what I think it would feel like. It was this really lovely space. All the dishes came out perfectly arranged, but not fancy. It was just wonderful. We went there twice while we were in Sedona. You know, it's so funny. There's so much overlap here because actually at Rusa, I had tapache that Chef Sasana made in-house and it was like the most incredible version I've ever had. And it's just so interesting, these places that make you really feel at home, that that invoke so much care and thoughtfulness. I know what you mean about a tamale being heavy. Like there can be tamales that are really dense and really rich. And so to have a contrast of something like a great bean, some flavorful components, it just makes it such a well-rounded meal. So my last one is a really simple dish that I really fell deeper in love with this year. And it's something I make at home now all the time. In fact, I think I'm going to make it tonight for dinner. But this is the year I really started making congee at home. Oh, interesting. I, it's funny. I thought you were going to say carbonara. But I don't know why was... I thought that. I was just like – I think so that, was, that was that last year's your, yeah. one of your top dishes. So I definitely fell in love with congee in Los Angeles. And one of the people who made it for me that changed my whole idea of what congee could be was you know Chef Min of Porridge and Puffs, now a Michelin yeah. star chef. Yes. Incredible chef. But at then at that time, she had a little restaurant called Porridge and Puffs where she was making, well, she calls them porridges. They're made from rice and grains and, mm. and she would top them with all kinds of fascinating things like little fermented bits and bobs and homemade savory chutneys and jams and slow braised meat. So you'd have this very flavorful, aromatic porridge that was topped with all these textural components. So I fell in love with Chef Min's version and kind of never made it at home. And in fact, also I would sometimes order it at restaurants because I never thought of it as something to make at home. Right. But one night at home, I don't know what happened. At some point I was like, oh, I could probably make my own congee. I'm craving it. And so I looked up some recipes online and I realized there were a lot of Instant Pot versions. And so (laughs) I tried Instant Pot congee and I made it. And this is all it involves. It was like a cup of sticky rice. I think it's seven or six cups of water. I'll link the recipe. Then I took a big knob of ginger and cut it into thin slices. And I added some, I think chicken bouillon or chicken stock, one or the other. And then there's something about the Instant Pot because now I've tried making congee just on the stove versus the Instant Pot. There's something about the Instant Pot that locks in the flavor so deeply. Really? Yes. Especially with the ginger. Like when I make it on the stovetop, the ginger is much subtler. When I make it in the Instant Pot, it perfumes everything with ginger, but without making it too spicy. And so this very simple rice porridge emerges, almost soupy. It's the perfect texture. It works every time. It's so, so simple. And then it's just the canvas for whatever you have in your fridge that you can kind of dig up. What do you put on top of it? I'm so curious. So a lot of times I saute uh, shiitake mushrooms until they're really brown. Oh my god. I do a soft Stop. I do a soft boiled <laughs> egg. I, oh my god. I wilt some greens. I get some kind of pickly thing like a pickled daikon is a nice thing to have, but I don't always have that. Sometimes I have, you know, toasted seaweed I sprinkle on top, but the things I have to have in addition to some kind of vegetable, sauteed vegetable, like a mushroom, but it could also be any like greens, right? Right. A soft boiled egg to me is kind of a must. And then I love to do toasted sesame seeds, toasted sesame oil, some good tamari or even liquid aminos is nice here. A splash of a good vinegar. And then 
a great chili oil just to end it off with. That's the basic thing. And we now eat it so regularly. It's kind of my dish of 2023. I make it so much and I really love it with the Instant Pot. It's one of those weird things where like, okay, this Instant Pot, my cupboard is worth it. I mean, that really, I have to say, came out of so left field for me. I was not expecting that (laughs) at all, but I might make that for dinner tonight. That sounds, so does it take long to make the kanji? No. As you know, in the Instant Pot, it takes a minute for it to get to where the timer goes off and then it takes a minute for the steam to release. So Uh I would say the total time in the Instant Pot is around 25 to 30 minutes. What about if you don't have an Instant Pot? How long would it, do you think it On a stovetop, it takes between 30 and 45 minutes and it's very easy. So basically on a stovetop, you just put, again, you rinse a cup of rice, you add it to like eight or nine cups of water. water. You can always add more water if you need it. And then you just simmer it and you occasionally stir it. It's not like risotto where you have to stir, stir, stir. You just kind of like peek on it. And then if it's getting too gloopy, you add a little more water or broth. If you want it a little thicker, you just let it cook longer. That's it. It's very, very easy. Yeah. I'm so interested. It's funny. I was thinking about making rice and lentils or farro and lentils tonight. And I have a bunch of baby broccoli, which I could roast and put on top of this. So with tamari and sesame and all these flavors, rich umami flavors. That sounds incredible. Yeah. And like, if you think about it, just it's just a quick meal. Yeah. Put it on the stove or in the Instant Pot. And if you just boil an egg or fry an egg, and then you have some roasted vegetables, you have a meal. And if you don't even want to do that, the, the rice itself is a meal. You could add some leftover. Right. Maybe you might have some leftover tofu or some leftover chicken or beef that could add a little protein. You can make this as simple as you want or as complicated as you want. And it's also just one of those, if someone's feeling under the weather, yeah. they need that little comfort. This is that yeah. dish. And the it ginger is so key. Cool. Comforting. Yeah. The ginger is key. And I have to say like, this is where I like having a little bouillon stashed in my fridge. I know (laughs) it's such a cheat. It's such a like something my mom and grandmother would do though, but bouillon has so much flavor in it. So if you don't have like stock on hand, I don't really think carton stock tastes like much. I don't either. Homemade stock is a different story. Yeah. I have a ton of stock in my fridge though. I have a bunch of veggie stock. You should use that. I'll just use that. Maybe I'll, I'll take some chicken broth out of the freezer. I have that in my freezer too. So this was delightful. Yeah, it's been such a fun year of recording this podcast. It's been our first full year. I mean, we started in 2022, but this was the first time where we went January through December. And I'm just so grateful to be able to do this with you. I'm so, so grateful to everyone who listens. And it would be really fun if maybe our listeners also, maybe if if a couple of people reported back, like what, what I did was I just looked through my pictures, right? On my phone. That's kind of how I did it. It was nice to remember, oh yeah, I had that omelet when I went Zydeco dancing and it was really fun. How you can even take those experiences forward with you. You having this kanji and now it's become part of your repertoire that you make a lot now, especially when the weather is cold. And I wouldn't have ever thought to make it had I not yeah. been exposed to it in such an incredible way in Los Angeles, which yes. is a place where I had so many food friends that I still, yeah. and I get to sort of connect to them through these dishes. Yeah, there's lots of connections and stories in every meal. And so I want to wish everyone a Happy New Year. Wishing you a happy New Year. Yes, my dear. To a beautiful 2024. Cheers to that. Bye. Bye. Thanks for being our food friend. If you enjoyed our podcast, please subscribe, leave us a review, and share this episode with friends. We love hearing from you, so follow us on Instagram or drop us a line at foodfriendspodcast.com. Yes, we'd love to hear from you and your food friends. Happy cooking and eating. (laughs) 